Hey everyone, um, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to be back with you all. As um, a lot of you know, my mom passed away eight days ago and I am overwhelmed by the cards and the texts and the flowers and just, um, I, I can't even tell you how blessed and grateful I am to be part of this community and how you honored my mom. Um, the funeral was beautiful. I had a few days to come home and rest, and now I am um, ready to go. And um, we're working on step five. And I had written a talk before on step five, which I called the nearness of our creator, because really, isn't that the goal of this whole thing? And this, um, so I just figured I'd talk about that and some of the beautiful step five promises. Um, and hold on, whoever's on mute patrol, there's some unmuted. I just got it, but um, okay. So there's some beautiful step five promises, but first I know there's some new people. I'll tell you a little bit about myself and do just a quick run through of the first four steps. So we don't talk about step five in a vacuum, right? It's like easier if we just kind of see it in place. So for any of you who don't know me, um, I am the real deal. I first came into OA when I was in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food. I stole money from food. At my worst, I was binging and making myself throw up six times a day. And then I had to have my esophagus surgically repaired because of the abuse that I heaped on it. Um, sometimes people show pictures. And I would say, if I were going to show pictures, I would have to get a picture of a zombie because I was like something out of the walking dead. Um, I was a compulsive liar. I made up crazy stories. I would cut myself with a razor and then go tell people I'd been mugged, raped. I went to the hospital um, saying I'd been raped and took the penicillin that the very nice nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. Um, I wasn't well physically. I wasn't stable mentally, and I certainly wasn't um, okay spiritually, even though I always believed in God. At one point, someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer that. Um, I kept binging even through my first seven years in OA um, until I was introduced to the God who I believe launches search and rescue missions for us. And when I committed my life to God, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And it's been 39 and a half years. And I'm excited, always excited to talk about step five and its promises and its role in helping us to find God. Um, but I want to, like I said, talk about the earlier steps so we have some context. Um, I want to talk a little bit about powerlessness because this tripped me up for so long. And if we don't really believe we're powerless, there's no way we're going to keep going when the steps get hard. So powerless. Um, page 24 of our big book says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. So again, let's break that down. They're saying my defense against compulsive eating, against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? Um, say I'm about to 
across the street and there's a truck coming. Well, I remember I've been taught if a truck hits me while I'm crossing the street, I'm roadkill or I'm allergic to cats. So I remember what it's like to have an asthma attack. So if someone invites me to her house um, and she has a cat, my memory will scan the data points and you know, this time you went near a cat, you had an asthma attack. That time you went near a cat, you got a sinus infection. My memory scans the data, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. You see, that's how my memory protects me. It grabs the data, goes to my conscious mind where I make my decisions and tells me this is dangerous. But with food, didn't work so well. Um, in college, I used to binge on these certain types of cookies. I mean, I binge on a lot, but this was the main thing. And I would tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two, but I would end up eating the box of 20. So there I'd go again, about to go to the drugstore, buy my box of 20 to just have one or two. And my memory scans the data points and says, oh, this time you said you're going to have one and you ate the whole box. This time you said you were going to only eat two and you ate the whole box and got another box. Generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind saying, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box. You'll hate yourself. You'll, get, you'll gain weight. Don't do it. Except unlike traffic, hot stoves, or cats, when it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken and the thought couldn't get across. So I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. People say that in meetings, sometimes keep the memory green. That's not in the big book. We are absolutely unable to keep our memory green. I had a broken bridge between my memory and my conscious mind. And once that bridge is broken, it can never be fixed. So what do I have to do, right? Self-knowledge doesn't fix that bridge. Desire doesn't fix that bridge. We're 100% hopeless without a miracle. But luckily, this program gives me a formula for a miracle. Page 45 tells me lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me what my solution is. And it doesn't say my solution is meeting or food plans or fellowship. These are all great, but that's not the real solution. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. I mean, those are really powerful words. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So let's play detective. We see the big book right here gives us our first clues about this power. Um, if it's going to solve my problem, this power must be pretty smart, right? Um, I have two master's degrees. I couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. This power must be strong because this illness is stronger than I am. And most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So smart, strong, and cares about me. That's a power. That's a God who I am interested in having a relationship with.
So we have some clues and um, page 53 of the big book, we can look later, gives us more clues and tells us God can be blocked by calamity, pomp, worship of other things and dishonesty. Um, so we need to just kind of clear up our prejudices, see what our idols are, get rid of all dishonesty. Um, and for me, my recovery really started when I said a prayer. Um, because prayer is like currency in the spiritual world, right? In the physical world, if I want to tank a gas filled, I hand the clerk a $20 bill or a credit card, but I can't hand God my American Express card and ask for power over my food obsession. The currency in the spiritual world is prayer. So I prayed and my prayer was, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. So that was really my step three when I surrendered my life to God. Well, on a practical note, what does that mean? So it means I'm not in the outcome business anymore. I don't do things to get a result most of the time. I mean, I'm human. I mess up a lot, but that's my goal. I do things because I'm obedient to God. So for example, I may have a desire that my kids who are now 20 and 21 go to church while they're, you know, away, not living here anymore. I can have a desire, right? I'm human. God created me with desires, but I can't have demands. And I can't have that as my number one goal um, because that's oriented. So I just do what I think God would have me. I take my kids to church when they're little. I try to model good behavior, but whether or not they go to church when they're grown up is not my business. And I believe God won't judge my success by whether I've raised church going kids. He'll just look at my obedience to him and living that way is how I stay sane. Um, because really very few things are any of my business. And that just makes life a whole lot easier. Um, then I did my fourth step. I looked at my character defects. I looked at my resentments, especially I looked at how I was wrong because the book tells me if I harbor resentments, if I'm a safe harbor for resentments, I'm cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. It's like being cut off from my spiritual oxygen supply. So I had to resolve my resentments. A um, couple of things I avoided doing. I avoided saying, this person is spiritually sick. So I just need to see that and pray for this poor spiritually sick person down in the valley while I'm up on the mountaintop. If I have a resentment, there's always something wrong with me. And a lot of times it's because I think people should run their lives in a way that makes me happy, right? With kids, don't we say sometimes, I think my kids should make life choices that will make me happy. And when I do that, that's selfish and controlling. Or I think I should only have to do things I want to do, which is selfish and self-centered. And then I looked at my fears. I love how the big book talks about fears. It says fear is an evil and corroding thread, evil. So I had to look at the reason for all my fears. Um, and when I drilled down, I found it was because I didn't want to be sad or I didn't want to be uncomfortable. But this program tells me I have to learn to live with discomfort. 
So example, um, my daughter now took some time off from college and a fear might be if she doesn't go to college, she won't get a good job. If she won't get a good job, she'll have a horrible life. If she has a horrible life, I'll be sad. And I then I look at the dishonest thinking. Um, my mind, when it plays God, thinks that no college degree equals a life of failure. And so I have to root that out. And then I ask, what would God have me do? And that's model good behavior, be kind to my children, and pray. And, you know, one of my kids is in college, one is working, and the jury is still out on whether they'll end up going to church when they're grownups, but I can sleep at night without worrying about it because it's not my business. Um, I finish up my step four with an analysis of my harms, my past relationships, and the crafting of a sex ideal. And then I'm ready for step five, which is um, what I'm going to focus on. Page 72 in our big book tells, tells us why we have to do a fifth step. And it gives us three reasons. First, I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change to not be such a self-centered person. But look at the second reason. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about believing in God. I always believed in God. It's about having a relationship with him and a proper relationship, not God, you're my Santa Claus, so give me everything on my list, or God, you're a genie, come out of your bottle, do what I want you to, and then go back in your bottle and don't bother me with what you want. A right relationship with God. And three, the fifth step is going to help me with the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship with my creator? And it says these defects are about to be cast out. I love that wording, about to be cast out. I don't do the casting. God does that. That's how it works. I look at my defects. I admit them, but he removes them. I think we read these words so much that it's easy to miss out on really how magnificent they are. These are my defects, a big wall of defects that I've built between myself and God. And what does God do? Does he say, well, you built this wall, you caused this mess, you knock it down, you clean it up, and I'll be here waiting for you when you're done. He doesn't. He comes in with a broom and a mop and sometimes for people who are stubborn like me, a big old spiritual sledgehammer, and he helps me clean it up. He does for me what I can't do for myself. Next paragraph tells us another important reason why we can't skip this step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking. We may not stop binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of this program, they wondered why they fell. So they did everything right, except reveal everything in the fifth step. Well, how come that's so important? Well, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And yes, dishonesty by omission, by leaving something out, is still dishonesty. Top of page 73 says that these people wondered why they fell. A person should never wonder if we fall, if we stumble, we should always know why. We should try to figure out why, not just say, 
tomorrow's a new day. I'll start over tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. We need to see why. So not doing a thorough fifth step is a cause of relapse. And the AA 12 and 12 goes into great detail on this on pages 55 through 57. Um, they talk about all the different consequences of avoiding step five, irritability, anxiety, remorse, depression. So if we're feeling that, maybe we should ask ourselves, am I keeping anything secret? Um, it's a, and then they say, most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. And I think this doesn't just stop at the fifth step. Um, when we do our nightly reviews, this is how thorough we need to be. We need to confess everything with our sponsor, with a trusted friend. We, um, we wanna confess it all. But this is what they say, the grace of God expels our destructive obsessions. Um, when I think of expel, right? I think of a kid getting, a naughty kid getting expelled from school. God expels our naughty obsessions, right? The obsessions that bother us. Um, it's just a beautiful image to me. And it's always important for me to remember it's the grace of God that got rid of my obsession and keeps me free of obsession, not any hard work that I do. It's as if there's a raging hurricane, my house is flooded, and the policemen are calling out on their bullhorns, get to the roof so the helicopter can rescue you. My job is to get to my roof. Um, I can't just say, pick me up by my front door, right? I'll drown. But let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. All I did was climb up those, be corny now, those 12 steps to the roof so that I could be rescued. Big book back on page 73. They say that more than most people, we live double lives. We're like actors. To the outer world, we present a stage character. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but we know in our hearts we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt. And guilt is only helpful if it encourages us to really admit our character defects. There's some people who say, oh, guilt is always bad. That's not true. If I take $50 from your wallet, I should feel guilty about it. But that guilt is only helpful if I go to you and confess and give you the $50 back. Otherwise, I'll just internalize it and then I'll just have this vague sense that I'm a bad person. So we do that. We carry around this vague sense of guilt and we beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm just a piece of crap. And we call that humility. That isn't humility. That isn't humility. Humility is going back to the person and giving them the $50 back. So the book goes on to say that the alcoholic or for us, the compulsive eater is revolted by what he does on his sprees. Um, it says, coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. Well, we can't be vague. We can't have boogeymen in the closet and say, well, I think I sort of kind of did some not so very nice things in the past. We can't. We have to say, I faked a mugging. 
I lied here. I cheated there. I stole from Susie. I was nasty to Sally. I need to be specific. Why? Because if we don't get these things out, the book tells us we end up pushing these memories far inside ourselves. And that leads to constant fear and tension. And that leads to more drinking or binging. So fear and tension, like mental and emotional drain. The chapter continues by saying psychologists generally don't work for us because we're generally not honest with them. And again, they hammer home honesty, saying we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world. A um, couple things about honesty. Basically, if we're not honest, we're not going to recover, period. Um, if we're not honest, it's like we took a big black magic marker and write the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't come in when we're dishonest. Ways we're often dishonest with our sponsors, often about food, right? We lie by omission when we don't tell them what we should, or even not about food. We know the things we should say. And think about it. If I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I've made an idol, a false God out of her, thinking that my relationship with my sponsor is what's going to get me recovered. I want to say that I personally, I confess ugly, disgusting things about myself. I don't tell them randomly to strangers, um, but I will tell my sponsor or I will tell my nightly review partner or a trusted friend because that's how I will stay in recovery. I can't lie to my sponsor. My sponsor's job is to help me get a relationship with God. We are better off honest with no sponsor than dishonest with a sponsor. If I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I'm stealing from her. I'm stealing her time. She can go out with and work with someone who means business or sit around and watch TV is a better use of her time than spending time with me if I'm not honest. Um, whether earth people need to be honest, I don't know, not my business, but for people like us, no lying, no stealing, no cheating on taxes, no cheating on husbands. We are people who have to live in a manner that's rigorously honest. So I'm going to flip over to the AA 12 and 12 for a bit on um, page 60. It says that until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we've so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still theoretical. When we're honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So then they say that going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. I mean, it's a lot easier for me to just go to God and say, oh, I've told God everything. Way easier than telling another person. Why? Because there's fear. What if my sponsor doesn't like me? What if she judges me? And by the way, as an aside, a sponsor needs to make sure that her sponsee feels safe enough to say anything. Um, I always tell my sponsees, anything they tell me in a fifth step goes with me to the grave. Um, we have to be safe, um, a safe space for our sponsees and people we work with. Okay. Back to the 12 and 12, page 60, it says, it is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development 
almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Surely then a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it's likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. Um, look at those words again establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. That is mind boggling. So the power that like decided where every star should fall in place in the sky wants to have a relationship with me, with you, with us, right? So often we want, we go through these steps and look at the rules and what we have to do and we miss the beauty of it. God wants a relationship with me after all the horrible things I've done. So 12 and 12 tells me I have to find the right person to do it with. And it's usually our sponsor. Um, they give us a rule. We have no right to save our skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a rule for a fifth step and for life. Um, I have to put the welfare of others ahead of, ahead of my own. The book continues and says, we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Being hard on ourselves like guilt gets a bad rap, but it is necessary only in the sense of being ruthless about admitting my character defects and admitting where I'm wrong. There was a time where I caught myself thinking, I hope bad things happen to so-and-so. Um, you know, so I just, I saw that in myself. I called my sponsor. I confessed mean-spiritedness, asked God to forgive me, to remove the defect, and then said a prayer for so-and-so. I think that's what it means to be hard on ourselves. We don't let ourselves slide by saying, so-and-so deserves it. She's really a nasty person. And I have to say, I've prayed on this, and I mean, I know who so-and-so stands for. Um, and now, yeah, I don't wish her bad. So, but again, if I had just kept it to myself, I would probably still be harboring a resentment. Um, so once we have the right person, we go to it. We hold nothing back. Um, again, totally honest. It says on page 75, we pocket our pride. And boy, do we put our pride in our pocket. And then the promises. I love the fifth step promises. They're beautiful. But I don't want to talk about them in a vacuum um, because it's really cool to see the progression of the promises in the program. The first promises are with step two. There are no step one promises, right? I'm just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's as if I went to a doctor and admitted I have diabetes. Okay, I admitted it, but just admitting it nothing changes. So remember, the big book tells me my problem is lack of power. So what I need to get better is more power. These steps are a continuum to getting more and more power. On page 46, it talks about us getting the first infusion of power with step two. 
it says, as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began, we're just beginning here, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. So once I say, maybe there is a God, and maybe this God can help me, I start getting power and direction, just enough power and direction, I think, to get us to step three. And then step three, top of page 63, gives me more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, so it means God. Being all powerful, he provides what we need if, so when it says if, it's a conditional promise. If we keep close to him and perform his work well, it says if we do that, what happens? We become less interested in ourselves. So the spiritual experience is really starting here. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered like Janet is, I become more tolerant and more loving like my creator is. It says we become less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. We become more interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. And it says, listen to this, as we felt new power flow in. So now we get more power. We got a little bit in step two and we get more in step three. And what are the results? It says, we enjoy peace of mind. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. That means we start realizing, oh yeah, there really is a God. And he's not just up in the cloud somewhere. Um, he's here. And we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. I had a tremendous fear of the hereafter that I was going to die. And, you know, God was going to open this book and look at all my bad deeds. And I wasn't going to a, a good place. Um, I don't have that fear anymore. And it tells us we are reborn. And the fourth step promises, bottom of page 70, says we've now begun to comprehend the terrible destructiveness of resentments and have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. And page 71 says that the founders of this program hope that we are convinced that God can remove the self-will that blocks us from him. So now we go beyond belief. We have trust. Um, and then we get to these like glorious step five promises. I love these. Um, after step five, we're told that we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. I felt as if I'd been nearsighted all my life and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, it says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. What a great visual that is. The fear is just like falling off us. And then this, we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just an awareness, we know that he's near. So whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is right near me. If I've done this work, he's there otherwise, but I'm not promised that I'll sense his presence, that I'll know that I'll have a certainty that God is here. That's a result of doing the work. 
Um, it says we may have had certain spiritual beliefs. Well, that was me. I was never an agnostic, always believed in God. That knowledge did nothing for me. It was as if I were a diabetic and I believed that insulin could help, but never injected the, the insulin. It would do me no good. So it says we had beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God is rewiring our hearts. The feeling that the drink problem, or for us, the food problem, has disappeared, disappeared, gone, will often come strongly. Often. I take that to mean more than 50% of the time, we won't be thinking about food. Um, it says, we feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Oh, so this is pretty awesome, but just wait until we finish step nine and we'll talk about it when we get there, where it says that we will seldom, meaning hardly ever, be interested in liquor or food not on our food plan. And when we're tempted, we recoil automatically. So stick around, the miracle's going to get stronger. Um, the 12 and 12 has even more fifth step promises that are really cool. Page 57 tells us that we're generally people who are tortured by loneliness. And it says, yeah, the fellowship helps us in a social sense. But even with the fellowship, we still felt anxious apartness. That was me. I could be in a room with 100 people and feel like I'm the only person on the planet. What's the solution? 12 and 12 says, step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. And even more promises. Page 58 of the 12 and 12, it says, we begin to get the feeling we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought and done. I and mean, when I'm telling my sponsor all the horrible things I've thought and done, and she looks at me the same way, I start to feel maybe I can be forgiven. And then it tells us it's often while working on this step that we first feel able to truly forgive others. So we start knowing we can receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Page 58, another result of step five, we get more humility. And I love how they define it. a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could. And page 59 has another promise. They just keep coming in this program. It says only by discussing ourselves, holding nothing back, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility, like straight thinking. Of course, um, chapter five of the big book says once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by me doing the spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. And step five in the 12 and 12 ends with this on page 62. This feeling of being at one with God and man this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Look at that word, toward. We get to a point where we're no longer running from food. We're running toward a full and meaningful sobriety. It, toward 
an ever-deepening love relationship with God. I'm not running away. I'm running toward. And if someone is sitting here today who isn't sure that there even is a God, you can start with the maybe prayer. It might go something like this. God, um, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you can help me. Um, but if you're there and you care, I need help. And then we start doing everything in our power to get honest, to be useful to others, to live a life of service. The worst thing that happens is you pray a prayer and there's nothing. It goes to dead air. But what if there really is a God? And what if that prayer is a catalyst that allows God to start a renovation project in our hearts so that we have a spiritual experience, so that he begins to rewire our souls in such a way that our plans and priorities become more like his plans and priorities. And when that happens, the food obsession just isn't there. It can't exist there. Um, and again, just as the book promises, we really can experience that the age of miracles is with us and can be for all of us. And with that, I pass.